Thank you, Neville. All right, just have to put my caffeine right here. And then I've got to find the right message because all the messages are in this one folder. I thought I was doing all right preaching three times in a week and then Neville goes to me after youth on Friday night. He goes, oh yeah, you're not beating me though. The most I've done is 16 in a week. I was like, oh, how do you even fit 16 sermons in a week, Neville? That's what I want to understand. But um, it's Nev, so we don't have the answers. But uh, Maybe I'll catch up to you one day. And what did you say after that? You said, oh, and Steve Spence, he just edged me out. I think he's done 17. And I was like, <laughs> 17 sermons in a week. So I've got a long way to go. But um, just uh, why don't we give the mums in the house an extra special uh, honour and applause. And you're amazing. And we are amazing. Especially if you got your kids to church this morning and they're alive and they're dressed. That's amazing. That's a victory. Amen. Krista, Hillary, so good. And uh, okay, so for Mother's Day, um, I said to the girls on Thursday night, I, uh, I preached on Deborah Thursday night because she's my favorite girl in the whole Bible. Um, and, uh, but I've, I've sort of um, shied away from preaching it on her, even though I've always wanted to preach on Deborah. But it's because I love her so much and her story. I can't do her story justice in 40 minutes. So I said on Thursday, I'll do half of the message now and I'll do the other half on Sunday morning. So you have to come on Sunday morning to hear the other half. So I'm going to stay true to my word, uh, hopefully uh, over the next half hour. And uh, you'll find uh, Deborah in Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5. This is a bit echoey and I sound like Jesus a little bit. So the microphone. But uh, Judges chapter 4. Now Deborah, I, I was saying the other night, she carries the Denise anointing because she just seems to do a thousand different things really well and she fills a million different roles really well. She's a, she's a prophet, she's a pastor, she's a preacher, she's a politician, she's a songwriter, she's a worship leader. This amazing woman, Deborah, she's kind of the... Um, and here we have Denise uh, leading worship and she's preaching tonight, so that's going to be amazing. Make sure you get to Billy. And uh, Deborah and Denise are kind of the incarnation of the Proverbs 31 woman. Um, you know the, the Proverbs 31 girl that we whip out on Mother's Day and we have a love-hate relationship with her because we love the concept of her, right? But we hate the reality of being her because there's that verse that says she wakes before dawn to prepare food for her family. And that's none of our reality if, we're, if we have children. If <laughs> exactly. Preach, Jet. So um, if sleep is an option as a parent, we're going to choose it. So anyway... I'm already rambling, but what was I? I'm preaching on Deborah this morning, the Proverbs 31 woman incarnated, and you'll find her in Judges chapter 4. But before we open up to Judges chapter 4, uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, I just want to give a little quick disclaimer on the book of Judges because I think it's one of the more um, misunderstood books of the Bible, right along with Leviticus and Numbers. It's kind of one of those depressing ones, and it's kind of unlike, you know, you read Isaiah, and it's depressing at first, and you get to the end, and it has hope, but Judges actually gets worse the more you read. Am I right, Nev? It's, it's fascinating, but it's grisly and depressing and, and gory and graphic, and you just kind of want to stop reading because it gets worse as you go along, but so, <laughs> and we're all feeling pumped to go home tonight and read the book of Judges, but here's what the book of Judges is revealing when we read it from top to bottom. It's expressing humanity's great need for a saviour. Okay, that's what it's doing. It's, it's showing us, because along the whole book of Judges, Deborah being one of the judges, one of 12 in this book, um, it, 
it shows us that, you know, there's this same old cycle that humanity, and in this case the Israelites, get themselves in. And it's this cycle of sin and rebellion, right? We know that story of the Old Testament. They start off with God, and then they rebel and turn away from God, and then they get themselves into a big mess. And the pain of that compels them to turn back to God and basically say, take us back. And then God being God on a relentless pursuit for broken humanity with a rescue plan always in place takes them back and that's and, he, and God raises up judges all the way through or leaders of the nation to bring the people back to God so that's the book of judges um, but it just gets worse and what it's doing in the book is showing us that we can't we can't have a human savior we need uh, a God savior we need a supernatural savior humanity left to their own devices their own moral plumb line their own truths are messed up essentially that's the theme of the book if you want to get down to it is you need God humanity needs God you can be spiritual and not be saved you can be in church and not be saved you can be you can have a religion and not be saved right that's that's what it's expressing here because without outside of a personal covenant relationship with the savior will never experience true salvation. So that's kind of what the book of Judges is kind of saying to us here from top to bottom. So Deborah, I'm going to say my personal opinion, she's the best one. Like out of all the judges, she's just the best one. She's the only girl one and she's, she's just amazing. She's the only one to be called a prophet and a judge um, until Samuel. Until Samuel. <laughs> Nev's like, I think you're fine. Um, anyway. <laughs> Always intimidating when the professor sits on the front row, isn't it? But anyway, um, so Judges chapter 4. Now, we're going to introduce her story. I'm going to tell you where she's at. But just remember, when I use the word judge, the word judge in this uh, biblical setting, don't think of a courtroom judge. Think of more like um, a chief of a tribe or a chief test in, in this case. I was calling Denise a chief test on Thursday night, wherever she is, but um, they were the exact. <laughs> she's just laughing at me like, what are you talking about? No, you're a chief test. And, and it was, they were the legislative, executive, military, religious, political leaders of the nation. So that was their role. That's what I mean when I say judge. And so this was Deborah. And in the time when the scenario we see her uh, come into in Judges 4 is uh, the background of it is Israel have gotten themselves into a mess yet again. The nation is in turmoil and they have been overcome and overrun by the Canaanites. And if you don't know, if you know anything about the Canaanites, they hate God's people. They are the enemies of God. And the name Canaanite literally means to vanquish and oppress. That's what the name means. And so it's, for, for an Israelite in that day, it was actually kind of similar to being a Jew in Hitler's day, in all honesty, to paint a picture. The, the streets weren't safe to go out in. It was, it was not safe to be an Israelite. And as a result... All the people in the nation had lost hope. They'd lost hope. They, they were oppressed. They were crushed. They were afflicted. And they were broken. And, 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 they were, and it, was, it was just an atmosphere of despondency, if you like. And so into this broken generation, and this has been happening for 20 years when we see Deborah, and, and, and into this broken generation, God raises up a woman saviour. She raises up, hello Mother's Day, now we're relevant. Okay. That's why I chose her. I don't know what that is. Did Eden put that there? Okay. She's trying to help me preach by giving me chocolate. Raise them up in the way they should go. Um, okay. So 
Judges 4 verse 4 to 5 says, Deborah was a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth. She was judge over Israel at the time. She held court under Deborah's palm between Ramah and Bethel in the hills of Ephraim. The people of Israel went to her in matters of justice. So this is where we hear of her. And she's sitting at her palm tree and, and she's carrying the Denise anointing and she's wearing all her rolls. And, and the people went to her for prophetic insight and wisdom and matters of justice, most likely to do with the injustice that they were experiencing um, at the hand of the enemies. And, and she's, she's, she's doing what she's supposed to be doing, I feel. She's, she's where she's supposed to be. She's comfortable. She's content. She's in a relationship with God. She's hearing from God prophetically. She even had an office with her name on it. They called it Deborah's Palm. It wasn't a tree to hang out under. It was a seat of government. It was a place of authority. That's what Deborah's Palm represented and actually was in that day. So she's at a post. She's doing any, everything in her capability, it seems. She's exercising her gifts. She's exercising her faith, okay? She's, she's, what more can a girl do, right? She seems to be at capacity. But there comes a moment when God apparently required more of her. There comes this moment because God comes to her out of everyone in the nation. She was hearing from God and God comes to her and he gives her a promise, in the form of a military strategy. And he tells her, you know, I'm going to, this is my promise to you. I'm going to use you to lead your generation into freedom and salvation. All right. And, and in doing that, he gives her a military strategy. But, and so he said, he's basically saying to her, they've been coming to you. They've been coming to you for wisdom, but now I want you to go out to them. He's saying, I want more from you because the purpose for which I've actually put you here is bigger than what you know right now is bigger than what you see right now, okay? And of course, with that, when God comes and he calls her into something bigger than she was already doing, as always, it's just a ridiculous, impossible, almost scandalous requirement. It's like, you want me to do what? Like that, he comes when he gives this strategy. And that kind of sums up our life in the kingdom of God a little bit. It's like God comes to us, he takes what we're already doing and he says, I'm going to make more out of this. But in order to make more out of this, I need you to do more. I'm going to require more of you if you want me to make more of what you're already doing. Okay, and so in verses 6 to 7, we're still in chapter 4. Um, he, this is the strategy. This is the promise. Okay, this is what he tells her to do. And this is what she says to the leader of the army. Like, okay, this is the plan. This is the plan God gave me. Okay, and don't tune out. I know you're going to want to because it sounds complex and irrelevant. But I'll explain it afterwards. So it says... Uh, it has become clear that God, the God of Israel, commands you, go to Mount Tabor and prepare for battle. Take ten companies of soldiers from Naphtali and Zebulun, and I'll take care of getting Sisera, the leader of Jabin's army, that's Hitler, to the Kishon River with all his chariots and troops, and I'll make sure you win the battle. Okay, that seems irrelevant, but let me just break down for you what God's actually calling Deborah to do. He's saying, gather your tiny army with no weapons because they hadn't laid hands on a weapon in 20 years, okay, and wait on the plains for the enemy army who is much, much bigger and stronger than you. And planes might not mean much to you, but um, that sounds like a plane. Um, planes doesn't mean much to us, but planes were actually uh, where the chariots had the most advantage. Now, the enemy has the chariots. They're kind of like 
like a big army tank. And he's saying, go to where the enemy is going to have the greatest tactical advantage over you and then wait there for me. That's what he's saying. It's like sending a bunch of kids out with water pistols against a big army with, um, with tanks and bazookas. That's kind of, kind of like the Nikki translation of what God is asking Deborah to do. Okay, and so, but God has promised victory. And that victory comes in the form of freedom and salvation for this whole generation of people. He's promised it. But, and this is where I'm heading this morning, but to experience that promise of freedom and salvation, they've got to push through some adversity. They've got to face some fears, some intimidation, some challenge, and some discomfort. They've got to get slightly uncomfortable as they lay their life on the line, okay? So God required more of Deborah because he put more in Deborah. That's what I want to say to you this morning. God never asks more of you what he hasn't already put in you. Okay, he just asks us to stretch. It's like Isaiah 54, stretch out your tent pegs. If you want to have a baby, you've got to have some stretch marks, okay? <laughs> and that is how I'm tying it into Mother's Day this morning. Okay, so <laughs> you've got to push through some discomfort if you want to hold the promise, okay? And you know, we live in a generation and a culture, I feel, that is so afraid of the push, so afraid of pushing through discomfort. It's like we can't cope with the idea of being uncomfortable. And um, I don't... It's not necessarily a generational or cultural thing as much as it could be in the DNA of humanity a little bit. We like to be comfortable. We like to make, we are passionate about being comfortable, whether it's financially or relationally or religiously or emotionally. We do what we can to be comfortable, right? But but have you ever noticed um, that there's something slightly anesthetizing? Did I say that right? You say anesthetizing. Anyway, anyway, there's something anesthetizing about comfort. Like when you go to sleep at night, what is your first priority? To get comfortable, right? Right? Like when you go to sleep or you're trying to get to sleep, you're going to make yourself comfortable, all right? And, and it's extremely difficult to get to sleep when you're uncomfortable. Comfort is the precursor to sleep, okay? And take it from someone who has been pregnant before, the, the closer you get to popping out the kid, the more uncomfortable you get, and so the less you sleep. And then you have the baby and you sleep even less than that. But, but although we're so passionate about comfort, I don't think God is nearly as interested in our comfort as he is in our calling. Because he needs a church that is awake and alert and active. He doesn't need a sleepy church with sleepy, drowsy believers. He needs a church that is awake. And so he's not super interested in our comfort, I don't think. And so what I really want to share towards this morning is the calling of God on our lives. But can I just make a disclaimer on the calling of God? Can I, can I attempt to define the calling of God for you this morning? If I may. Thanks, Sue. She gave me permission right there. So... <clears throat> We love to hear about our calling in God, right? But, but it is kind of difficult to define, isn't it? It's like we're, biblically we're called into salvation, right? But what about thereafter? Like what, what is my specific unique role that I play in the kingdom of God? How, how does one define that? And so 
I feel like I can break it down for you this morning. I feel like I can tell you, I feel like I can define for you what your calling in God is. Is that okay? All right, you can, don't throw things at me. So I believe that your calling and your role and your, your destiny is, is always going to be about others. Your calling in the kingdom of God is summed up in the sacrifice you make for others. Because sometimes, like, I feel we can get a little bit introspective sometimes about the calling of God on our lives. Like, like I mean, we've all been there. What is, what is my calling? What am, what am I called to do? What are, what are my gifts? What aren't my gifts? So I can make sure I'm not serving the kingdom of God with things that aren't my gifts. What, what am I good at? What do I, what do I feel led to do? What makes me happy and comfortable to serve the kingdom of God? And then suddenly we're kind of right back at comfort again, all of a sudden. And the minute that I make it about me, I've just hindered myself from actually walking in the calling of God on my life. Because the calling of God is not about me. It's actually very little to do with me. It's way more about others than it is to do with me. Does that make sense this morning? Is that all right this morning? (laughs) We're not blessed For the sake of being a blessing, we're blessed to be a blessing. Everything in our lives is intentional. Everything in our lives is intentionally to be used for the sake of others in the kingdom. God can use anything. Like we don't come to church on a Sunday morning to sit in in plastic chairs and hear Neville preach for 15 minutes. 15, you're right. It was a miracle. 50 minutes. <laughs> if, we're, if, if, if we're lucky. But we don't, come every, <laughs> we don't come every Sunday to listen to Nev preach for 15 minutes. Or I hope that's not the reason we come. Like we don't come to church to be comfortable. We don't come to church on a Sunday morning or Billy Nudge on an afternoon to be happy and comfortable because what makes me happy and comfortable might not be what makes you happy and comfortable. Being happy and comfortable is subjective and it's preferential, but we're here this morning because we're called to a purpose. That's why we sit in these seats this morning. That's why we gather here in this building because we're called to a purpose and the purpose to which we are called is about seeing others in that generation outside those doors be delivered into freedom and salvation. A generation who doesn't have, doesn't have truth, doesn't have a moral plumb line, doesn't have an axiom, doesn't have, doesn't have the wisdom and the knowledge and are subsequently crushed and oppressed and afflicted by sin. Our purpose is the same. Our purpose is the same. Everything we do, you know, and I think I want to remind us this morning... That every, every person in this room has a significant calling of God on their lives. Every person, no matter where you are on your journey with God, God has a calling that is specific and unique. And I want to ask you, do you realize how important you are to the kingdom of God this morning? Do you realize how important you are to the kingdom of God? Because I think sometimes we need to be reminded that The calling of God isn't restricted to people with microphones or on stages with instruments or behind pulpits. You know, everyone's got a pulpit. Everyone has a platform through which they can influence. That's just a thing, an expensive thing that holds up notes. That's not anything important. Everyone has a calling. My calling might look different to your calling. But the purpose is the same. And the purpose is to partner with God as Deborah partnered with God in delivering a generation 
from hopelessness and into salvation, from brokenness and into freedom. Does that make sense this morning? That is why we're here. Are you excited to be alive this morning? Are you excited that you're born on purpose for a purpose and that no one's left out of this equation? Is that exciting to you? All right, tell your face. Okay, so when we say what I'm not called to missions, it's not actually true. Every person in this room is called to missions because the church of Jesus Christ is the greatest missionary strategy ever designed by God. And that's why we're here this morning. Praise the Lord. The purpose of your life is so much bigger and greater than you, than just you. You, you are a part of a greater plan, a bigger plan, a strategy. That, and you play a part. But here's the thing. You've got to push through some discomfort. And that's the part <laughs> we don't like to hear. I tricked you into thinking that I'm going to preach on the calling of God this morning. But actually, I'm just going to talk about being uncomfortable. Because calling and comfort don't mix. I'm going to call my message that this morning. I'm going to title it Calling and Comfort Don't Mix, but I was nearly going to call it You Have to Push for the Promise. And then Paul was like, that sounds way too much like labor. You cannot call yourself. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? You didn't do the pushing, so you can be quiet and I'll call my message what I want. But <laughs> Deborah, <laughs> he's like, too much information. I'm like, be quiet. Um, so Deborah was promised victory. She was promised freedom and salvation. And she got a glimpse of that promise when God called her from that palm tree. She got an ultrasound, if you like, of that promise when God gave her the prophetic word. He gave her the prophetic word and along with it a prophetic military strategy and he was giving her an insight into what could be. He was giving her an ultrasound of the promise to come but between the promise there was a push. There was a pushing through of, of challenge, pushing through adversity, pushing through resistance. And I think sometimes we can start off in God and we get an ultrasound of what we could be, an ultrasound, a, a glimpse of what we could do for the kingdom of God. And we get the prophetic words from people and we get the encouragement and we get, we get the glimpse and people, people say, you know, what you could do for the kingdom of God. And then, and then eventually over time we find ourselves not actually seeming to walk in that, not like we get this feeling like, why aren't why, am I not why do I not feel like I'm fulfilling the call of God in my life? What, is, what happened to that ultrasound? Where's that promise? What happened? And I wonder this morning if, if it's because we liked the concept of calling, but not the reality. Because the reality meant that we had to get uncomfortable in order to see it happen. I wonder if when God called us, we didn't realize that if we wanted the promise, we had to labor for it. We had to push through some discomfort, some challenge in order to see it happen. Because to fulfill, to walk in the calling of God on all our lives, it's, it's uncomfortable. You know, humility is uncomfortable. Unity is uncomfortable. Surrender is uncomfortable. Submission is uncomfortable. And Deborah, she had to push through some, some discomfort. I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a woman leading an army in a patriarchal culture. Like she shouldn't have been speaking in public, let alone 
engaging on the battlefield, right? I can't imagine what it would have been like to rally troops and to instill fear and faith instead of fear when they hadn't even laid hands on a weapon in two decades. I can't imagine that sort of discomfort and adversity she had to push through and the sacrifice that she made. But maybe desperate times call for desperate measures and, and maybe it's in the push that the secret weapon is prepared. You know, Deborah was God's secret weapon in this historical narrative. She's the secret weapon. She's the secret strategy to bring freedom to a generation. But it's in the push that the secret weapon is prepared. How many mothers in the house know you're going to push for the promise? (laughs) I'm going there, Paul. You can peek through that window all you like. But (laughs) I figured, look, it's Mother's Day and I have to throw in a labor analogy or it's just not right. But (laughs) if you want to hold, and I'm going to make the boys increasingly uncomfortable on the front row. But if you want to hold and experience the promise that you got a glimpse of in that ultrasound, you're going to have to push through some pain and some discomfort and some resistance. You know, labor is this interesting place to be in, boys, because you are as equally... I hope this doesn't scare you, Laura. Um, You are... (laughs) sitting there, like, really pregnant. Like, what are you going to say? You are as equally... um, surrendered as you are responsible like you are (laughs) and the girls are like amen um (laughs) you are completely surrendered to the circumstances you have no control really you don't have control over the pain you don't have control over (laughs) it's just like anyway you have no control over the pain or the contractions or even what the baby's doing heck you don't have control over what the doctors are doing and it gets pretty scary up in those um maternity wards but there is one thing that you get to be responsible for one thing and it's when Laura it's when the midwife says to push okay when she says push you better push because bad things are going to happen if you don't push when the midwife says to push okay and so (laughs) you may not have pushed out a tiny human this morning and might not find that super relevant but I'm willing to believe that every person in this room I'm willing to bet on it that every person in this room has had to push through some pain, push through some opposition, push through some resistance, some affliction, at least once in their lives. And so as I pull this, attempt to pull this together this morning, I want to say one final thing about Deborah because I believe there's a secret hidden key in her story to all of this, all of this that I'm waffling on about. There's a secret key hidden in this story and it's within her name. It's within her name and, you know... Bear with me here because in in Hebrew culture, which is the context that we're reading from this morning, in Hebrew culture, you know, names carried so much more weight than they do with us in those days. They didn't Google top 10 celebrity names for 2000 and whatever. They... When they named a child, it was a prophetic declaration over their life. It was a declaration of their prophetic destiny. Names are so important in the Bible. You have to look into it. And so... When you look at Deborah's name and the meaning of it, you kind of expect it to be like warrior woman or, um, I don't know, deliverer of the promise or called of God. But it's, um, it simply means honeybee. It means honeybee. And I'm not going to lie, I was a bit disappointed. <laughs> you won't be offended by the time I finish, Deborah. Um, <laughs> I was slightly underwhelmed when I was like, you know, my name's better than that. Like Nikki means warrior for the people. Does it? Victory for the people. Okay, Paul's name means um, small man <laughs> and, and he's over six foot tall. It just makes no sense. It's not prophetic. But what am I saying? Um, honeybee. 
And I was like, that's, that's, that doesn't go with my message, Lord. But then I remembered God, <laughs> God uses animals in the Bible to illustrate kingdom principles to us. He, he uses his own creation to, to express spiritual things to us. He talks about ants in the book of Proverbs to illustrate hard work. He talks about Jesus being the lion to illustrate his nature, his strength. And, and as well, he talks about Jesus being the lamb to illustrate his sacrifice. And he tells us to be, you know, as calculating as serpents and innocent as doves. And so he uses animals to, to explain things to us that we would otherwise not understand. And so when you look, when you actually look into the life of the honeybee, it actually reveals something about the calling of God and the calling of Deborah, I think. You know, the honeybee is actually the perfect example of patience and persistence and pushing through challenge, pushing through resistance. And I'm going to tell you why. Allow me to explain to you the life cycle of the honeybee. Can I do that? Can I preach to you about bees this morning? Even if it has nothing to do with Mother's Day, can I, can I tell you about bees? So they start off, that tiny little bee starts off in a hexagonal cell in that, in that honeybee hive. And then it gets, an, it, enough honey is stored in that cell to last it until maturity. And it's sealed in there with the bee with a capsule of wax. Okay, and that bee stays in that little hexagonal cell, that tiny little bee, and feeds itself on the honey until it comes to maturity. And once the honey runs out, it's time to emerge into the open. That's what the honeybee does. And we think, that's beautiful. But to emerge into the open is the hardest part. It's not easy for the honeybee to emerge into the open. Do you know why? Because there's one narrow gate. There's one exit and one exit only and it's to push through that capsule of wax. It's like push or die for the bee. If it doesn't push through the wax, it stays trapped in that cell and it dies. Why? Because there's no honey left. It's got a limited supply. So it has no other choice but to push through this wax. Okay, but here's, here's my punchline this morning. If you weren't tuning in before, I'd appreciate it if you tuned right in just for this minute because this is the punchline of the whole message I want to share with you this morning, okay? In the agony of the exit, as that little bee pushes and strains and struggles and sort of like works its way through that capsule of wax, do you know what happens? It rubs off the membrane that hid its wings that it didn't know it had and on the other side of the wax is able to fly a capacity and ability that it never knew that it had. It just had to push through and it had to lose something, it had to lose that membrane in order to fly on the other side and there it's exposed to this whole new world that it didn't even know existed. And what I want to encourage us this morning is that you will never know your capacity in, unless you challenge it and you will never know what God has called you to do unless you are willing to abandon your comfort and push through some challenge and be willing to sacrifice and willing to lose something you know if that bee didn't fight for its freedom and quite literally break through it would remain trapped and die there if the mother doesn't push when the midwife says to push, bad things happen, okay? It's not a good situation. We have no choice but to push through some opposition sometimes. And I guess what I really want to say is that there is a cost when it comes to your calling. I guess that's what I want to express to us this morning, if I may, that there is a cost when it comes to your calling in the kingdom of God. And remember that your calling in the kingdom is just to call people into the kingdom. Like if I can summarize it in one sentence, but there is a cost 
You know, we like the concept of calling and we like the concept of church and we like the concept of ministry, but the reality is different to the concept because the reality has a price tag attached to it. And that's why Jesus said, count the cost. He said, don't even bother building the building if you don't know what it's going to take because you won't finish what you got an ultrasound of if you don't realize the labor involved. You won't finish what you started if you don't realize that it actually does take work to make it work sometimes. You've got to count the cost. And there's always going to be sacrifice involved in the kingdom of God. There's always going to be moments when God comes to you and when he comes to me and he asks for our yes again and again. And even when we feel like we're at capacity, even when we feel like comfortable where we are, no, 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 we're in our slot. We're doing what, no. And then he says, I want more off you, but just trust me. But just trust me, there's always going to be moments when we have to say yes to the more he is asking of us. And just remember, he only asks more of you because he's put more in you. When you go to sign the clipboards at the back of the church today to say, where can I serve in this church? Remember, God only asks more of you when he's put more in you. But do you think that the bee complains about the sacrifice it made that gave it its wings? Do you think it misses that little cell that it was in? getting fed, just getting fed. And all it could see was itself and it was just getting fed. Do you think it misses that place when it's soaring in a whole new world? You know, this is the best part. This is the best part about the bee. You know what it does when it gets to the other side, when it pushes through that wax and it enters the world? Do you know what it does? It just serves. Like, I'm not kidding. They're worker bees. They're honeybees. They just, they just serve. They serve the hive. They go out into the world and they pollinate and they come back and they go out and they come back and they go out and they come back. And all they do, it's just written intrinsically into their nature, is to serve. They serve the queen bee. Note the illustration of royalty and kingdom there. They just serve the queen bee. It's just written into them. But, but part of their freedom is in the serving. You know, they're hard... They're hard workers, these bees. By the time you have a pound of honey on your kitchen table, they've flown about the distance of three times around the world, one little bee, to get a pound of honey. That's how just constantly moving, constantly doing, constantly serving. But, but the freedom is found in the sacrifice. There is freedom in serving the kingdom of God. In fact, your freedom is in serving the kingdom of God not remaining in an introspective little cell where it's just about getting fed. And you know there's a time in our lives when it's appropriate to be in that little cell eating the honey and getting fed, you know, until the supply is exhausted. And that's why I believe there's a limited supply of honey, if you know what I mean, because you're not meant to stay there. There comes a time when we reach maturity when it's time to push through and emerge into the open and enter a whole new world of freedom and serve. We come to serve and not be served. You know, Jesus, in Matthew 10, verse 39, it says, If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. You will find your freedom in the sacrifice. If you cling to your comfort, if you cling to yourself, if you cling to your little world, you'll lose it. You'll lose it. You'll lose your freedom. But if you give up your life for me, if you experience sacrifice, if you just do some things you don't want to do sometimes, you know, sacrifice is a normal kingdom concept. It's Western culture that, that tries to avoid it. Is that all right this morning? Did I have too much coffee? Am I being too intense this morning? <laughs> you know, your freedom is not actually just about you. And I'm not just preaching at you. I hope, I hope that 
I'm, you see that I'm preaching to myself and all of us at the same time. Your freedom is not just about you. It's about others. Your calling is not about you. It's about others. It's about an entire generation outside those doors drawing breath at the same time who need you to be free so they can be free, even if they don't know that they need you to be free. They don't know what freedom is outside of God because God is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay, we have a generation without a moral plumb line, without a truth, an axiom, without, a no, without knowledge of God. And they need us to be free so that we can then deliver them the promise of freedom. And your sacrifice, and I'm, I'm going to land the plane and it's going to be a Mother's Day miracle time-wise. And I'm going to invite the musicians to come up super subtly and not loudly. As can That never happens. But, you know, your personal individual sacrifice is part of a much bigger, grander, greater strategy. It's part of a much, much bigger plan than just you. In fact, it's kind of a ridiculous, scandalous, seemingly impossible rescue plan that God's kind of set up to bring people, humanity, into freedom and salvation, to bring people who are crushed and afflicted by an enemy, by sin and death and the grave. And, 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 and our job, our role, our mandate, our purpose is to deliver that promise to them, to deliver them into freedom and salvation. You know, perhaps Deborah's parents named her the honeybee. I don't actually know what they were thinking, but perhaps they prophesied an ability in her to push through, to sacrifice and persist for the sake of others, for the sake of somebody else. Something that a mother knows only too well. Am I right? Judges 5 verse 7, Deborah says, she sings actually, she sings a song and she says, I, Deborah, arose a mother in Israel. And you know, I was saying to the girls on Thursday night, I find it intriguing in the scripture that it goes to the trouble of naming her husband and saying she was a wife and, and but no actual biological children. It doesn't list any biological children as the Bible typically does. And I wonder if that's intentional because I wonder if it's there as if to, to ensure that none of us can think we're exempt from being a mother in our nation. And by that I mean by carrying the maternal sacrificial heart of God into our people living beyond ourselves. None of us are exempt from being a mother in that sense of living a life of sacrifice, of establishing justice and mercy and compassion, right? And, um, you know, Deborah's story is actually part of a much greater, grander story. It's actually pointing towards a different story. You know, the Bible, this is what I... I think I taught you your school this. The Bible, the YWAM school, I teach them about Bible study sometimes. And um, the Bible is what we call a meta-narrative. That's just a fancy word for one big story made up of lots of little stories that come together, but they all tell the same tale in their DNA. They all essentially are saying the same thing or pointing to the same thing. And Deborah is part of that meta-narrative. Her story points to a greater story. Perhaps you've heard of the story. The Old Testament points towards it. The New Testament points back to it. It's one story. And it's the story of the greatest sacrifice ever made for the freedom 
of somebody else. The greatest sacrifice, the greatest adversity, the greatest pushing through of challenge. Okay, when, when, when the devil and his army thought he had the greatest tactical advantage, something happened. Jesus pushed through on the cross. The story of sacrifice is told at the cross of Jesus Christ. But it was for the promise that he got a glimpse of. He got a glimpse of you and I being delivered into freedom and salvation. And it's the reason that we sit here this morning is because Jesus pushed through for the promise set before him. Because here's the thing, here's what I really want to say this morning. The sacrifice is the precursor to the promise. Our sacrifice is the precursor to somebody else walking in that promise. Is that all right this morning? And as you can, you can stand, we're going to sing. But I want to ask you this morning, what is your wax? <laughs> what is standing between where you are and where you know you should be? Where is God calling you? If you're here and you know you should be there, what is it that you need to sacrifice to push through to be in that place? I just felt that question on my heart because here's the thing. Your story, your life, your sacrifice for the kingdom of God is actually part of a much, much bigger story. Your life is a part of a meta-narrative. You are part of the meta-narrative. You are part of a, the greatest love story ever told to humanity, a story of freedom and salvation. And your sacrifice points to His sacrifice. Your freedom points to His freedom. And so the lives we live must be a story to tell people of the greatest story ever told. Is that all right this morning? And I want to encourage you as you stand, you can stand and we're going to sing, but we're going to sing this bridge. When I see that cross, I see freedom. And this is my prayer this morning, that when people see your cross, when they see your cross, your sacrifice that you make for the Kingdom of God, that they would see freedom, that they would come through those doors and they would see freedom and salvation and they would be delivered. Amen? Amen. That is good news.